Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Renza Shibilia. She has lived with type 1 diabetes since 1998 and has worked in diabetes organizations for 22 years. She is the Director of Community Building and Communications in the Global Team at JDRF International. She is also the Global Head of Advocacy for DDOC, a European-based organization providing opportunities for diabetes advocates from across the world to become part of a peer network and attend professional conferences under the banner of Nothing About Us Without Us. Renza has extensive experience as a consultant, facilitator, and media spokesperson, and she is frequently invited to speak about peer support, diabetes technology, communication in healthcare, and how to reduce diabetes-related stigma. Renza is well-known in the diabetes community and is the author of Diabetogenic, which is you can find it at diabetogenic.wordpress.com, and she's a regular contributor to many health publications. Since August 2017, Renza has been wearing a DIY automated insulin delivery device, and she is part of the We Are Not Waiting movement. It is my pleasure and honor to have Renza on the show. I have been wanting to speak with her for some time, and uh, she's someone I found very early in my son's diagnosis. One of the first bloggers um, that I discovered and her blog. If you haven't read it before, I highly suggest reading it because she speaks her truth, which I think is a lot of truth for people with diabetes. And she has done so much to elevate the conversation, um, get people with diabetes a seat at the table. And just really move things forward also in terms of access and and many, many other things that people with diabetes really need to live well and thrive with diabetes. So without further ado, please welcome Renza to the show. Hello, Renza, and thank you so much for joining me today. I am so very excited and very honored to have you on the podcast today. I actually have wanted to talk to you and interview you for some time because you do so much. And I think your work, it means so much to people that have diabetes, to people that don't have diabetes. If they're listening and they don't know you, they should. So welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks for your very, very kind words. And I'm thrilled. I'm really thrilled to be here. No, thank you so much. And before we begin. I just also want to say, um, we'll put all the links in the show notes for everything we talk about today. But I mentioned Renza's blog, and I really think it's important to note that in early days of online communities and diabetes, and I don't even know when I first discovered your blog. It was many years ago before I started Diapoint, before I left the corporate world when my son was very small. You were one of the first bloggers that was out there. And everything that you write truly resonates. So you have a great deal of experience and you've been living with diabetes for some time. So can you tell us when when you were diagnosed? Yeah, I was diagnosed 25 years ago. I had my 25th anniversary. I have on my desk 
a medal uh, saying that I have diabetes for 25 years. And I can tell you, I look at it every single day. It's it's right next to me. I look at it every single day. So yeah, I was 24 years old. So you can do some maths now. Now you know how old I am. Um, but yeah, so 25 years ago. Yeah, well, if I do the math, you don't, you don't look like that. Ah, uh, you're, see, you're look. Very alone. <laughs> Every every single nice thing you say, I'm loving you even more. That's very kind. Thank no, you. no, no, thanks. And how was it at that time being 24? Because even still now, type 1 diabetes, people are still surprised when it happens in an adult. But I'm sure 25 years ago, there probably were even fewer adults diagnosed or that people were generally aware of. How How was it 25 years ago? I feel so fortunate because my story was truly very, I guess, boring the way that I was diagnosed. So I I had the usual symptoms that you'd expect, the four T's that we know them as now. Um, I went to see my GP and said, I think I'm being a hypochondriac, but hey, could I have diabetes? These are my symptoms. They're pretty serious. And her response was, yeah, you are being a hypochondriac. And she sent me off to have a blood test. So in hindsight now, I'm like, yeah, why don't you just prick my finger in the room or, you know, do a urine dipstick or something like that. Um, And two days later, I found out that I had type 1 diabetes. And it was, you have type 1 diabetes and that afternoon I was seeing an endocrinologist in their rooms. So there, there was no delay for me. And I hear story after story of children, adults of all ages of being of ever being everything but type 1 diabetes until the correct diagnosis gets made. So my diagnosis story is thankfully incredibly boring. You know, I've worked on so many, um, you know, the 4T camp- T's campaigns and other diagnosis stories and campaigns, and I, I, my story is not one of the ones that we hear about where people wind up very, very sick because um, they've they've had such a delayed diagnosis or a misdiagnosis. That's that's really good and good for you for being in touch with it and being aware of the symptoms before yeah. you you even had it. Um, I have no idea how I knew that. Diabetes is not in my family. I didn't know anyone with diabetes. I have no idea to this day how I knew that they were the symptoms of diabetes. Mm. That's very, very wise, very intuitive that yeah. that you you knew. And and yes, it it is very frustrating that doctors still dismiss it. My son's doctor did. And mm-hmm. I only had an idea because as a child, I had a dog that was constantly urinating. He had an adrenal gland condition in the end, but it took a very long time to diagnose and everyone kept insisting he had diabetes. And when my son started having similar symptoms, otherwise I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought of it. And his pediatrician would have sent me home and said, you are like overreacting. And so many parents, so many people, so many adults, they're misdiagnosed as type two or something else. It's it's really frustrating. You mentioned yeah. the four the four T's. Could you highlight what those are for people that are not familiar with them? It's tired, thirsty, toilet, thinner. That's what they are. So I think that was Diabetes UK that started that campaign. I worked at Diabetes Australia for a very long time uh, and we sort of co-opted that campaign as well, but it's been rolled out in lots of places globally now, you know, these are the symptoms, know the symptoms. And and I think one of the things that we did um, in the campaign that I was involved in was that I was really adamant about not it simply being know these symptoms, go see your doctor, because that 
isn't enough. It was know these symptoms and then go and ask your doctor about type 1 diabetes and ask to be tested for type 1 diabetes. The reason being is that it didn't, you know, people, if they had the symptoms and went to the doctor and said, I have these symptoms, doctors aren't automatically thinking type 1 in so many cases. So, but specifically saying, can you please test me for type 1 diabetes? That was the way to get across the line, I, I, I hoped that would actually see, you know, see us moving the needle with, um, you know, faster diagnoses and and not and and not people being misdiagnosed with type two or something else. We had these incredible, you know, I've listened to so many stories from people to hear about what is it that you were told that you had before you found out what it really was. And I still, I mean, there are some that are startling. You know, it's things like it's the flu, it's a tummy bug, it's this, it's that, it's that. Somebody was told. She was two years old. Um, her parents were sent away. It's she's teething. That's what it is. Like it's anything but diabetes, you know. So actually saying and planting the seed that hey, I, I it may not be, but can we do a quick? It, it it takes no time to do this test right here, right now. Yeah, that that is so so true. And having after having a child with those symptoms that he was eighteen months old, going wow. backward in his toilet training, and I was like, hmm. Like and urinating a lot, drinking a lot of water, and Dubai in August is like near fifty degrees. So at first I thought, oh, too hot. You know, it's great he's drinking. But then when it kept increasing, and I was very specific after googling the symptoms, which I kind of knew but didn't really know, and telling the doctor, could you, could he be, could he have type one diabetes? And it's like no. And if I didn't specify type one diabetes, he would have never checked because he insisted that it was impossible. And he didn't even believe his own glucometer. Like he went and got a second one. So um, yeah, you you have to be so specific if you have those symptoms, definitely. And that was a really good segue into my next question, because you've worked on so many campaigns. Um, For those of you that don't know, Renza is based in Australia. Melbourne, yes. if I remember I'm correctly. In Melbourne. I am. Okay. Yes. Lovely city. Lovely city. It is. Love it. Love it. Oh, yeah, it <laughs> is. It is. Um the, Australia has done some of the most amazing campaigns. Um, I think really truly leaders in terms of public health and the diabetes space from every everywhere that I see, everything that I follow. Um at least in in from the English perspective in language that I can read and understand. But I, I do think that the work that Australia has done, and you have been a part of so many of those campaigns, it's amazing. Oh. What does it, what does it take for the uh, some of your campaigns, they've caught on in other countries and other parts of the world. What does it really take for that to happen to make things shift to push yeah. for for something like that? If you ask me any time what makes something successful, I will say it comes from community. And that's the bottom line of why things have kicked goals is because it has been telling, um, you know, it's been addressing issues and telling those stories through the lens of people living with diabetes because there was such strong engagement. And um, that is often not the way 
things are done, uh, you know, far more frequently. And I, I, I've seen so many of these because, um, you know, my side hustle, I guess, is often to, you know, is I do some consulting and I, I'm given a, a, a virtually finished campaign and said, tell us what you think or can you get some people to look at this? And really the, that, that's code for we're ready to hit print, tell us to go. And um, there's been no real engagement and it's been developed by perhaps a creative agency that doesn't have any real insights into diabetes and they haven't bothered to do the work where they've had to go into community to do that. And that's been a really, really big part of it. You know, I, I look at, you know, a number of campaigns that, that I was involved in. There was one around hypoglycemia called The Lowdown and that was all about, it, it was effectively a peer support campaign, digital campaign, but it was telling the story of hypoglycemia. And the second year of that looked at the stigma behind um, hypoglycemia. Um, you know, mental health campaigns that looked at diabetes, burnout and distress and stigma. And all of, the, you know, that came back to, well, these are the conversations that are happening in community. How can we harness what those discussions are, but then put them out to the broader community so that they can understand them um, and, 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 and get why this is something that is an issue to those of us living with diabetes. And, and I think that, you know, if we look globally at some of the hugely successful things that have happened, it is so often because they are either directly developed by amazing diabetes advocates who are working at that grassroots level doing great things, or they're, you know, done by organisations who, who are very, very um, switched on and, and, and closely linked to, to community as well. Um, and I was just reading through a new resource today about mental health for parents of kids with diabetes. And I've just looked at this and I've gone, this is startling. Like this is staggering how brilliant this is at, I mean, the insights that I got, I'm, I am a parent, but my child doesn't have diabetes, but you know, like it, it, clearly the work with community to, to develop this in a way that is, um, you know, just going to speak to so many people is commendable. So that's, you know, the fact that these things are happening, um, you, can, you can pick the ones that that have that engagement because they're the ones that, that hit the mark each time. That's a really good point. And why do you think it is then that sometimes either healthcare providers or public health movements or things like that, they don't think to involve the actual people living with the chronic condition or they don't yeah. ask, they don't think to ask. And I know, you know, over time, they're always told that they are experts in this um, area or in healthcare or in something, but the people actually living with the condition, and in this case, diabetes are always the missing link, whether it's a community action or sometimes even technology. I've seen beautiful diabetes apps that have been developed, but they never been embraced um, yeah. by, by the users and then they just disappear. What, what do you think that, why, why that gap? Why does that exist? Uh, look, I think part of, you, you hit the nail on the head there. When we talk about who are diabetes experts, we would hear, we'd, we'd list the health professionals and the researchers and the academics. And they're right. They are absolutely experts, but so are people with diabetes. And, um, you know, there there isn't that, you know, and I think that this is a bit of a, a like a, there are two issues here. One, 
um, you know, that lived experience isn't put at the same level as clinical experience or research experience. Um, but sometimes I feel that as advocates, we can sometimes be our um, own worst enemy. You know, I mean, I feel extraordinary imposter, imposter syndrome a, a lot of the time. And I, I used to say, and I don't say it anymore, but I would be sitting on a panel or in an ad board or something, and I would be the one often, you know, lived experience rep. And, and I would make a joke and I'd say, oh, I'm here to bring the IQ down to lower the tone. And somebody said to me, you need to stop doing that because you're not only undermining yourself and your expertise and your experience, but you're doing that for the whole community. It is just as important to have people with diabetes there. And, and I've actually flipped that completely. And, and now if I'm sitting on a panel and, you know, we're asked to introduce ourselves and I am the one with lived experience, I will say I am the most important person on this panel. And um, if, if, if it's one of those brilliant, you know, all planets have aligned and there are more, there's more than one of us, I will say, and we are the most important people here. Um, and I say it with no sense of anything other than absolutely you need to listen to us. So I think that a big part of it is that it's just, re, you know, we haven't been positioned to be um, the experts. There is undoubtedly hierarchy in healthcare. And, you know, for so long we had, you know, you just did what that your health professional said. They were the, they were the expert and, and they were the ones who handed out um, the knowledge at, when they saw fit. And that's just not how it is anymore. It hasn't been like that for a long time, but certainly in the age of being able to find any information that you want, you know, on your phone or, or, or by talking with other people so easily, that's really changing the paradigm. But sadly, there still isn't the level of engagement that there needs to be, um, and certainly not as early in the game as, as it needs to be. Yeah. And I remember when you made a post about you, I saw you on a panel and you said you're the most important person in the room. And I think I may have even verbally cheered at my desk. It was brilliant. I was like, yes, because I mean, I am not living with diabetes, so I don't know what that feels like, but I never would want my son to not feel like his experience mattered or, or just be, what's the word, you know, just looked at kind of differently from an expertise perspective. I mean, I know when I left the corporate world and I worked even still I worked in healthcare for 20 years or so before my son's diagnosis, but entering that room as an advocate with a different story to tell or a different perspective feels yes. intimidating sometimes. Yeah. Um so I just yeah. And now people think, oh, it's a mom with a hobby. And I'm like, not exactly, but it takes, you have to kind of repeat it again and again, I guess, to get people to yeah. listen and understand that you're, you're really there as, as an expert and you, you truly are. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's very obvious, very quickly that you do add value and you are an expert. And for someone that's looking to maybe they want to advocate they they want to get more involved what advice would you would you give them yeah i mean and this is a a question that i get asked a lot is you know how do you, how do you get into this and you have to show up like you know my favorite one of my favorite tv shows of all time is the, um the west wing and there is a line in there that they say throughout it you know decisions are made by those who show up and 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 that's part of the thing is that it advocacy is a slow burn Right. So 
whether you're looking at at whatever level you're looking at it, whether you're looking at your own individual role as an advocate or if you're looking at advocacy to to move policy or whatever it is, it takes time. Nothing happens really quickly, right? Um, but you know, it 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 took me a long time to get to a stage where I was being invited to sit on panels, and a lot of that was things like you know really pushing to say, hey, I am sitting here in a room and there's not a person with diabetes on this panel, and yet you're talking about us. Um, but before we could even do that, we had to fight the battle to be allowed into the room. So it's sort of this incremental thing where it's been step by step, um, and. A lot of that has already been done. So people aren't starting from zero in the sense that they've got to, you know, necessarily, um, you know, knock down, you know, knock on doors to actually be allowed to be let in. But, you know, to be the person who is there, you know, there are often volunteering opportunities or, you know, being asked to be involved in something, whatever it might be, and and it's, it's showing up and doing that. And I don't think that people should only be volunteering and I don't think that people, um, that our time isn't valuable. We absolutely should be paid for our expertise wherever we possibly can be. Um, but at times, you know, it might be, and when I say volunteering, it might be, you know, doing a, a walk to cure or whatever it might be. It's those sorts of things that, you know, you can start to build community and get involved in your local communities to to start to work out how it is that you can, um, you know, really build that advocacy profile um, that that can that means that you're connecting with others um, who, who you can continue to work with. What was the turning point for you where you decided to start advocating and use your voice was there a particular instance or was it something that kind of gradually happened yeah it gradually happened I mean I I I fell into the job working in a diabetes organization sort of two and a half years after I was diagnosed I had been um, running a, a, a music teaching business and I stopped doing that because I just I didn't want to run my own business. I was told that I needed to reduce stress. Um, and then I did a couple of other things and then I wasn't working and I was doing actually some volunteer work for a local diabetes organisation and they asked me, they said to me, look, we don't really do anything for type 1 diabetes. So um, in the very definition of type tokenism they said uh so we've got some funding we've got like a three day a week position you've got type one do you want to do it and I went yeah, sure okay I'll do this for six months until I work out what I want to do and that was in 2001 so 23 years later it still seems to be what I want to do or I still need to work out what I want to do but what that you know I mean I I, I didn't know what I was doing I, I absolutely had no idea but one of the things that I did was well there were two things one the, C, the, the CEO changed and the guy who came in not long after I started, in my very first meeting with him, he looked around the room and, he, and asked everybody what they did and he said, we're talking about diabetes and there's one person with diabetes in this room, that's not good enough. If we are ever talking diabetes, which I'm guessing is probably going to be every single day of our working lives here, there better be a person with diabetes in the room. And that lit a fire under me in so many ways because it made me understand that our role was integral to every every conversation that was being had about diabetes. And, you know, from there, you know, I worked with him for, for, for 19 years, I think it was, in different organisations and he was very true to that. And and the way that he he really saw engagement was something that that I adopted as well. And it, and it became sort of, you know, I guess the way that 
that I was able to work with community and um, and for, you know, lived experience to start to fit and sit very comfortably alongside clinical and, and research and academic experience as well. Um, but there wasn't, like, there wasn't a moment where I said, I want to be a diabetes advocate that sort of, um, you know, happened very gradually. Amazing. What a what a great story and what a great leader to realize yeah. that yeah. he needed yeah. people with lived experience in the room. I think Absolutely. that's so critical for He's, for every organization. Yeah, he um I, I, I remember when he started uh one of the first things, so that this the, the organization that I was at had sort of 80 support groups across the country and some in rural and regional areas. And he spent a day every month or a couple of days every month going out and meeting with them. And, you know, when I when I say support groups, I'm talking about, you know, there was one that I can still remember because I went and visited them. They were, and I would encourage people to go and look up where Sea Lake is in Victoria. It's this tiny, tiny little town on the border between Victoria and New South Wales. And um, the support group, was four women who came together, and I think I think half of them had had diabetes. The other two were their their husbands had type two diabetes, um, and they came together and they spoke about diabetes, and and you know they made sure that in their local area, you know, for example, the pharmacy had the right sort of supplies that they needed, and also like they were incredibly you know active in their community. And if there was anybody newly diagnosed, they would reach out to them, and um, you know he went and sat at their kitchen table, and and they probably made him scones and and jam and. And, you know, he he got to know what the issues were in local areas. And he is the reason why I hate and people are, are constantly surprised when they hear a diabetes advocate say, I really don't like community advisory groups. And he is the reason that I say that because I consider them to be an example of nothing more than tokenism. And organisations that have a community advisory group and do no other engagement are failing in every single marker as far as I'm concerned of when it comes to actually genuinely, genuinely um, engaging with people with lived experience. Um, and he's at, they they were sort of like the building blocks of how I built my own advocacy and, and where that all came from. Amazing. That's that's a lovely story. And and that's also proof that, you know, one person can can make a difference to start yeah. and you will somehow the universe works in its own mysterious ways and you will meet other people on the way that yeah. support you or you'll work together and and do do really amazing beautiful things and yeah, yeah change change starts at home as they say yeah. i guess <laughs> so it does yes <laughs> that's amazing so recently you've gone to work with the JDRF Yes. So I joined um, the global access team at JDRF International at the beginning of this year. And that's been a, you know, it's it, it's been incredible, really. You know, um, my work primarily, you know, my day job, if you like, has been in Australian organisations. And now it's I'm working in a global organisation, which is, you know, really aligned with the advocacy that I was doing anyway. I've worked with DDoc and, um, and they're, you know, I'm their global head of advocacy and I've been involved with DDoc since it, it started. Um, and I've been on, on, you know, so many, um, you know, have worked collaboratively with so many advocates internationally. So it it sort of felt like a very comfortable and logical, if you like, next step for me. And, you know, it, it, it fits in really neatly with work that I've done with IDF and, and other, you know, international organisations as well. So, um, yeah, so that's been since February this year. And I feel like it's just the next chapter in my advocacy life, really. 
That's a, yeah, amazing. And to do it at an international level, I think is really, really wonderful. But when, when I saw you announced that, I said, well, of course, uh, that would just make sense as the trajectory. You're already reaching so many people inter- internationally, and I'm sure that it's, it's amazing for them to also have, have you on board. For those of you that don't know the, the JDRF, because we don't have any here, um, in the UAE or in the GCC that I'm aware of, uh, the JDRF is the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, and they've been around for many, many years. I remember as a child, the company where my father worked, we would do the walks every year. Um, yeah. yeah, despite that, we still, you know, that nothing... That that didn't mean I knew anything about diabetes when my son was diagnosed. I had no idea. But they they do really great work, um, a lot of research support, and and a lot of different things. So we'll put a link um, in the show notes. So definitely worth checking out. And m- most recently, and, and this is something you talk about in your advocacy quite a lot, is the language that's used around diabetes um, and also the stigma that comes with it. And I really do love that because like I said, sometimes when I observe things and one of the early things that I realized what I had mentioned before we started recording was when, when my son was diagnosed, there were no pediatric endocrinologists in Dubai. We didn't find one for about three years. And when we did, she was in Abu Dhabi, which is about an hour and a half drive from here. Amazing endocrinologist. Yeah, Dr. Asma Deeb. We used to see her until we got one in Dubai. And um, the the pediatrician that we would go to to check A1C and do things like this, there was just something about the conversation and that I couldn't put words around it until one day I was reading one of your blogs talking about the language that was used and the way people talk about people with diabetes and these, even the unconscious bias, I'll say, whether conscious or unconscious, that's, it was driving me crazy because I always left these appointments feeling, feeling bad, not for myself, but because my, my son is growing up with diabetes and observing these things and hearing these things and being really you know, conscious of how is this affecting him? How is it affecting his mental health and how he feels about it? Because I want I want him to be a happy, healthy, confident child, just like every other parent. But it wasn't until I read one of your blogs and you put words to it. It, it was so powerful. And I think everyone should really be aware of this. And you've done, I mean, a, a wonderful job talking about it, the language around diabetes, and then now the stigma pledge. Can you tell us a little bit more? about that. It's quite, uh, that in itself can be a whole uh, podcast episode itself. It's quite a big topic, but I think so, so important for people with and without diabetes to understand. Diabetes has, you know, I say this frequently, has an image problem. People don't understand diabetes. They um, don't understand how serious it is. And I'm I'm, I'm saying diabetes under an umbrella condition right now. Um, There are different uh, issues depending on what type of diabetes you have there would be different specific issues around that image problem depending on the age you are you know who it is that you're talking to but as a whole diabetes has an image problem it seems perfectly okay to make jokes about diabetes whereas we would never make those jokes thankfully about cancer for example if we look at um, the modifiable risk factors 
when it comes to something like type when it comes to type 2 diabetes you know these are the things that we talk about and we we love to be really simplistic you know if you lost weight and you're more active that's all it would take um but actually the modifiable risk factors for type 2 diabetes are the same for different cancers including breast cancer but and also for cardiovascular disease and yet any big great comedian at some point will absolutely stand up there and make some joke about a Coke can being named diabetes, but they would never, ever say the same thing about a Coke can named breast cancer. And I'm not in any way, whenever I say this, I've got to say, so I'm not suggesting that people get out there now and start making stigmatizing jokes about breast cancer, but I am asking that people think about what it is that they're saying about people living with diabetes, because the the insinuation is that you brought this on yourself. Now that is about type two diabetes. People don't understand the different types of diabetes, and we're never going to get people who don't understand diabetes to know the different type about the different types. That's just you know how human nature is. We we focus on things that are of interest and of relevance to us. But, you know, trying to address this image problem has been a really, really big part of what I've done. And, you know, the language uh, matters movement in the diabetes community is massive. You know, um, uh, you know, I, Diabetes Australia launched the first statement um, 12 years ago, but that wasn't where this first started. Conversations about how impactful the words that we use are when it comes to talking about diabetes have been around for certainly as long as I've had diabetes. I've seen these conversations in community for that long. You know, people would say, I walk out of a healthcare appointment and I feel demoralised and, you know, demotivated and judged and I feel guilty and I feel like I've failed. Or other people walk out and say, I just had the best appointment and I feel so motivated and so supported by my health professional and I've got these really clear plans of what I need to do to move forward and they understand what a struggle it is and, gosh, I feel like, you know, I know what I need to do to make things better or to keep going the way that I am, whatever it is. And, you know, it's undeniable that this isn't just about political correctness. This is about people, how they feel about their diabetes and how they feel then impacts on how they behave with their diabetes, how they're able to manage their diabetes. And, and that also, you know, comes down to the stigma that we experience. That stigma comes from everywhere. It comes from the general community. It comes from the media. It comes from family. Um, it comes from workplaces, from schools. It comes from the healthcare system. It comes from healthcare professionals. You know, when people, you know, hear from a healthcare professional, well, you're not really working hard enough that doesn't in any way recognize just how hard diabetes can be. And all it does is it makes somebody feel that they're not good enough and that, you know, it should be easier and I'm not, I'm not doing well enough. You know, there, there are very real impacts to stigma that go beyond people just feeling bad, although that, as far as I'm concerned, is enough. But we know people will not return to healthcare right? They will not go back to that same healthcare professional. They might not go to another healthcare professional full stop and not show up again until there is really something wrong that they know they need to have seen urgently rather than having regular contact. So that is why this is an issue that, you know, is, and it's not, it's certainly not just me who's doing this. This is something that is around the whole diabetes community. I was at the American Diabetes Association conference back in June and I just remember walking down the corridor one day and somebody saying, gosh, everyone's talking about diabetes stigma. And I was thrilled. I said, yeah, they really are. It, it's, you know, and I hate to use it, it's like a buzzword because it sounds like it's just flavor of the month and then no one really cares about it next month. But I actually think we, this is on people's radar now and they're understanding why this is important and why we need to address it and try to fix it and to end stigma in really meaningful ways. I I just wanted to say like amen. <laughs> it it, right. it it's such 
it's so important. And as you point out, it affects how people feel yeah. or, and if they're going to return to the doctor, if they're going to take care of themselves, it can leave them feeling hopeless. I spend like you, I do some consulting and other things. And I can say a good 30% of my time in a lot of business development meetings or different kind of meetings like this are just spent just changing the attitude and the stigma. And yeah. I get so sick and tired of hearing every time people say, oh, well, what does your company do? And they learn more about what I do. And they go, oh, you must be so busy because everyone here has such a horrible lifestyle and you know yeah. all these other things that I just think, no. I mean, one, there's a whole genetic predisposition and a yep. lot of other things yeah. happening. And then I start talking about all the different reasons why it becomes a whole education session <laughs> because the the stigma that people have and what they're thinking is, is like you said, it doesn't happen for, for cancer or any other chronic conditions. This stigma, or if people go and in the case of a pre-diabetes diagnosis, they'll go to the doctor and people, friends and others that I've spoken to professionally. So many, so many times they're just like, oh, lay off the desserts, take a walk or not helpful. But then it goes even further. And I see how it affects children, which yeah. is a real triggering point for me. And I could say it's maybe one of my trauma points. Actually, I I spoke. I think after this episode, there'll be an episode where I'm speaking with a local um, health psychologist, and she talks about caretaker trauma. Which again, I never had really words for it, but I realized that a point for me because I never would want my child to be discriminated against for having diabetes, but because of the stigma, children are discriminated against. Children are turned away from schools or they're allowed to go to school, but there's all these special requests from the parents to send a shadow nurse and all kinds of other things. And I feel that so much of that has to do with the stigma that yeah. conscious or unconscious bias, whatever it is, it has to change. And I'm so, so happy that people are talking about it. And I'm so thankful for the the work that you've done and that you just continue to keep talking about it and you are very good also at calling it out when you see it too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel that that's part of the thing. It, it's, and no one has to do that. It is exhausting, but you know, we need allies, you know, we need allies. And I, you know, during um, ADA again, um, a truly, truly remarkable advocate from India, Jazz Seti, she runs, she was, She's the founder of the Diabetes Foundation, and I'm pretty sure there are five of her because she does so much. It's impossible for one person to do all of them. But one of one of the five jazzes and I worked on <laughs> you know, with the community developed an open letter to health professionals about diabetes stigma, and and the ask there was, please be allies, um, call it out when you see it. Um, you know, do your part to make sure that what it is that you're saying doesn't add, doesn't contribute to that stigma. You know, be factual, be, you know, be really clear about what you're saying so that it doesn't add to that image problem. Um, but we really need you to stand alongside us and help us because we can't be the only ones who are calling it out. It, it is too easy when it is just people with diabetes um, being responsible for trying to move the needle here that we do get accused of being very precious flowers who who don't who who can't handle people being a little bit mean to us. Um, it's not about that. It, it's absolutely not about that. 
So, you know, finding allies is is important um, and we have so many of them. So it's it's thrilling to be able to work alongside them in, in a number of different projects, um, but we need more. We absolutely need more. Yeah, Jazz is amazing. And we'll yeah. put a link for that letter in the show notes also so people can find it because I think it's Excellent. it's extremely, extremely important. And so in terms of the future of stigma, yeah, diabetes. What do you see? Have you have you seen drastic changes? There, there's a lot more people talking about it, but do you feel that it is starting to shift and people are being more aware of, of yeah, everything? I think, I think people are more aware of it. You know, I mean, and and there are, there are different ways to measure that. You can look at the conversations in online, um, you know, groups and discussions and and different platforms. Um, you can look at diabetes conferences, and I can't think of a recent diabetes conference where stigma hasn't been a topic of conversation or, you know, on the program, including at the most recent IDF Western Pacific region conference. And that felt like a, wow, like that, that felt like a moment that um, because, you know, it's, it's traditionally a region where that is not necessarily something that would make it to um, a professional conference program. And, um, and it was, and I was really fortunate to have been invited to be one of the speakers and they had, um, a second advocate, Anita Sabadi from Indonesia, who who spoke as you know, her work is really important and and fabulous. And health professionals also from um, the Western Pacific region talking about you know why this is something that they need to work on and how it comes from working with the community to really advance these conversations. Um, so yes, people are more aware. You're seeing it on on um, agendas at at, at programs at conferences. There is research being done. You know, it, it's great to see that we currently have a stigma pledge that we are asking people to to please sign um, up to now as as individuals, but also as organisations. And and this is, um, I guess, uh, has come from um, there's a consensus statement about stigma that is being um, launched later this year. It's currently the the, the report's currently under review, and that was. Um, developed by 51 diabetes experts from 18 countries, 21, 18 or 21 countries. And again, when I say experts, it, it is everybody, you know, all diabetes stakeholders, researchers, clinicians, people, lots of people with diabetes and people affected by diabetes um, and all, all types of diabetes as well. So, um, you know, we we've got these sort of collaborative events that activities I should say that are really looking to address it in meaningful ways to get um to get things published to to really highlight the evidence that supports what we're saying which is that this is important that we address this um, because it will improve outcomes for people with diabetes amazing I think that needs to be taught in medical school I agree. Oh my goodness. I totally agree. You know, there's a slide that I share that isn't my slide. It was a slide that Jane Dickinson, who's a remarkable educator from um, the US, and it's some horribly stigmatizing comments about, about diabetes and, you know, from health professionals. And, and the way that I do it is I show this and I say, look at these comments. Um, and I say, you know, these are from healthcare professionals. And my next, and I, and I ask the audience, who do you think is saying this? Um, and they'll say, oh, you know, endocrinologists who have been around for a while. And 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 the shocking, shocking thing is that it's coming from trainee nurses. These are, pe- these, these are health professionals who haven't even made it onto the wards yet, haven't even made it 
to actually working with people with diabetes yet, yet, but they had this bias that is already ingrained that is saying, you know, oh, well, I can't work with people who don't care for themselves. And obviously, you know, they're overweight, they must not care for themselves and those sorts of horrible things. You know, I absolutely agree it needs to be taught, you know, in health professional training and it needs to be constantly reinforced. And so much of that comes from listening to people with diabetes. When you hear our stories about why stigma matters and why, you know, how impactful it is and how we really, really need to um, do what we can to, you know, I guess, you know, address this, that that's how I think it, it's going to to start to move the needle. Yeah, I never realized how powerful it was until once I was invited to speak at a Arab Society of Pediatric Endocrinology training. And early in my son's diagnosis, people were saying all kinds of crazy things to me. And I thought, hmm, they want to understand the caretaker's perspective. Let me see how yeah. this goes, not really knowing. And they were in tears by the time I finished reading through that slide, yeah. much to my surprise. But one of the um, the things that was said was actually to my son when he was very young. And of course, getting a blood draw for regular blood work can be really traumatic for a child. And, you know, yeah, him having not remembering his diagnosis, but they couldn't find his veins. And I imagine, you know, digging was yeah. not some, something his body remembers. So he would be really upset and afraid when he'd have to get a blood draw and a diabetes nurse educator in a pediatric endocrinology clinic, looked to him because he was about maybe seven or eight years old by then and said, what's wrong? Are you a baby? And that did not help the situation. Didn't. Of course. How would that help? How would that help? But my my point in telling you this story is because to this day, he's Mm. like, and he never wanted to go back there again. And to this day, he's almost 16. He's still like, remember the time that that nurse said that? That comes up a lot. And this goes back to your point in the beginning where people will not go back to the doctor unless they're really, really ill after feeling so, so bad. So people may not remember what you said, but they're going to remember exactly how they felt. And they don't want to experience that again. They're already oftentimes feeling bad as it is. And yeah. they don't really need to be pushed down further by comments like I, this. I can still remember the images and the words, like the images that were shown to me in the words when I, on the day I was diagnosed. It was 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that that's part of the conversation that I have with health professionals is that we may be only one person that you see, and I get it, you know, I, I, I get it, but we will we are the only person who is living our life with diabetes so when you say something to us that makes us feel you know terrible we will remember that we absolutely are going to remember that um for a very long time and you know i can still remember that and i'm sure that he didn't say it with any malice i'm sure he didn't realize the impact of it but it has really impacted how i have felt about a lot of my diabetes for 25 years i, I- I absolutely believe it. And and just in the same way, positive things can really make a difference too. Even, even yeah. if your patient may not understand it at the time. I remember when, so my son was diagnosed, there were really no pediatric endocrinologists here. I grew up in Houston, Texas. Texas, uh, you know, there's an amazing healthcare center there. Um, so 
we I went back, stayed with my parents a bit and went to the team in Texas Children's and I learned everything I needed to, you know, try to yeah. figure out how to take care of my son. But the doctor there, and it wasn't even like a, a positive word of encouragement, but just teaching me how to think about this and not always looking to the doctor for answers and asking me, well, what do you think? Like opening that door for that conversation to teach you how to think about diabetes can be life-changing. Otherwise, you, you can't move forward if you don't get those verbal cues that you're doing well or that it's okay to have an opinion about it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's absolutely a hundred percent true. Yeah. Something so small. Yeah. So I, I don't want to overrun my time because I could really, really talk to you all day. And I know it's, it's afternoon where you are. Um, so uh, I'm going to, you know, let you, let you go. Cause I really, really, I so much appreciate you, you doing this, but if you could leave everyone with, with diabetes that's listening or parents of children with diabetes with any final thoughts or words of encouragement, if someone's having a challenging day, yeah. what, what, what would you tell them? You're doing enough. You really are. You're doing enough. Tomorrow you might do more and that's enough for tomorrow. You might do less and that's enough for tomorrow as well. But beating yourself up about, you know, not doing enough and 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 telling yourself that you're not good enough, that's not going to help because nobody, nobody asks to get diabetes and what you are doing in this moment right now is enough. Seek support if you would like to change that because you think you could be doing more but you're not sure how to do it and find community. That's not just one thing, I know, but I just want to, add on that last one because finding um, peers with diabetes that you can connect with who um, get you, you know, that I think is life-changing for so, so many people. So find find them. They're everywhere. Uh, and if you need help, you can always come to me via my blog and I will point you in the right direction. But um, you will find people because that com- the community is huge. Amazing. That's, that's really lovely advice. And yeah, we need to always remember that we are doing enough. I say this as a parent, because there's some days where I'm like, oh, it's not enough. And now that my son's older and doing more of it himself, I, I love that advice. And I'm going to tell him that often. Um, and the the community, yeah, finding finding people that understand it's it's life changing. And especially if you're meeting them for the first time, like when I meet a parent of a child with diabetes for the first time, that connection is so deep. You don't even have to talk. You just, you know, Yep. Yep. you just know. Like that's the thing that astonishes me. You know, you you don't even need to talk diabetes. It's just a, a common understanding. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate it. And we'll have all the the links of the different things we discussed today in the show notes. For those of you that are listening, thank you so much. I just want to, again, thank Renza so much for joining me. Like I said, I wanted to invite her on the podcast for some time. And because she is so busy and if you follow her, you see her doing so much stuff. I was honestly, sincerely not sure if she would even have the time. Not that she wouldn't make the time, but 
she's she's out there doing so many things for so many people. And she has a family and, and a personal life as well. So I really want to thank her for taking her time to speak with us today. And thank you all for listening. I'm always appreciative of your time. I loved her points about community. And I think that does make a difference. Even sometimes if we think we're doing okay, we don't need a community. And I know that after even I met parents, other parents that had children with type 1 diabetes, it made a big difference. It's so important to meet people who understand what you're going through, while others that don't have diabetes are empathetic and supportive. There is nothing like the connection of meeting someone that's that's going through what you're going through. And I also really loved her her advice um, that you're doing enough. I think that is something to remember always. Everyone is out there doing their best and continue to do your best, whatever that might mean for you. It, it might change from day to day. And that was really lovely advice. So I thank her for that. If you're in Dubai and you would like to reach out and meet more of the community, we are actually having an event on November 4th and 5th. We've been talking about this in our social media channels and on our, our webpage and in other places and in our emails, if you're on our email list. It's the Diapoint T1D Family Weekend. We have such an exciting event, two full days, Saturday and Sunday, of fun activities for children, activities and talks and discussions that will connect parents of children with type 1 diabetes. So if you are in the UAE or in the area or somewhere else and you can make it to join us for this very special weekend, please do so. You can register at www.diapointshop.com. Please register as soon as you can because space is limited and it is filling up. And I so look forward to seeing you all there. Thank you for listening. Part of our mission at Diapoint is to support people with diabetes with our free resources and content. The medical care associated with diabetes can be extremely expensive and even out of reach for many. If you found this podcast helpful, useful, interesting, or inspirational, please go over to Apple Podcast and give us a five-star review so that more people can hear about it. You can rate it or you can leave a review. And also don't forget to share it with your friends. We thank you so much for your support. This is a very simple way to support us and it can be very powerful to help other people find the information that they need. Have a wonderful day.